0: Funny how it be funny, like I'm, a clown, like I'm 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 a clown, I'm a clown, I'm a clown. Rosebud, 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 Rosebud. So, yeah, I listened to the Rosebud. infamous uh, Sam Elliott Rosebud. interview with Mark Merritt. Uh, it was fun real fun what did he uh, say
1: that was controversial again i forget that was a couple of news cycles ago
0: mark Marin like asked him about it and he's like oh he's like mark maron's like yeah you want to get into it he's like yo you want to talk about that piece of shit (laughs) and Marin's like yeah yeah let's get into it um (laughs) (laughs) so so you could tell Marin was a little taken aback by sam elliott like Sam Elliott was coming from, like, I'm sorry, but it's kind of mind blowing to people that were surprised that an old man who has starred in numerous Westerns and is an icon uh, had something negative to say about a movie that goes over the complexities of toxic masculinity and repressed homosexuality in the Old West. I'm just shocked that he had that outlook.
1: Um so what's the deal? He just didn't like Power of the Dog cuz it was gay. Like what's the yeah, stance? He was he like all like... these
0: he was like all oh, they're all these fucking chaps. He's either in his furry chaps or his leather chaps and he's got the fucking handkerchief and he's just walking around like and he, he just comes home. He doesn't even take his chaps off. He just goes upstairs and plays the fucking guitar like he was just just describing
1: the movie it sounds angry. like.
0: Yeah. He was just uh, he just went off like he never said anything like that was like what I would consider like offensive in terms of using any slurs or anything. Clearly, Right. he just didn't like the movie for that reason. And I thought it was fucking hilarious because clearly the movie's great. It was the number one movie of the year for me. I mean, she's a genius. He was like, no, she's a brilliant director, just not on this piece of shit. Um, and the funny thing is, she was in the news a couple of days later for making this weird Serena joke. Um,
1: right, 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 right. Yeah, but
0: like, dude, it was awkward. She was like, "Oh, well, you guys don't have to play against the men like I do," and it's like, "What? Like, what are you talking about?"
1: <laughs> well, it's like, it's like, yeah. I mean, you don't have to play against men, but also, you don't have to play anything. Like, you're, <laughs> like, yeah, you're a movie director, like.
0: Like, these are two world-class athletes, uh, Venus and Serena. I could not remember the other one. Uh, Venus and Serena, they're sitting there, and she's, like, saying this shit, and everyone was just kind of, like, awkwardly laughing. She apologized, but it's like, don't apologize because it was offensive. Apologize because it was bad. It was just a <laughs> stupid joke.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, she's from New Zealand. You know, you, you never know what those people are going to do or Dude, say.
0: these fucking Kiwis, man. By the way, can we say Kiwi? Is that a slur?
1: I mean, I think it is a slur, but it's a slur against, you know, white New Zealanders, you know, colonizers. So it's fine. You yeah, know?
0: fucking Kiwis. Um, yeah. He also bitched about the fact that they shot it in New Zealand and told you it was Montana. And it's like, Sam, you've been in enough movies to know that movies lie to you sometimes about oh, where they're come
1: shot. On. Especially when, like, the, the landscape of, like, Australia and New Zealand lends itself so well to, like, y- visual splendor. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like oh, wow, they shot in New Zealand and told you it was a Western? Like, you know, like, it's not that different.
0: You're not going to talk about, like, a complex movie like Shane or or a fun musical like Yankee Doodle Dandy or Oklahoma. It's like people have been experimenting with Westerns for decades. Don't act like this is the first one to explore anything weird.
1: Right. I mean, Howard Hawks literally says that, like, Red River is all about, like, sex, you know? Oh it's, yeah.
0: Yeah. With what's his face? Um, not John with, Wayne, but the uh, Montgomery Clift.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah.
0: yeah so like, I mean, that was
1: made in the fucking fifties, you know?
0: Yeah. So to sit there and have this reaction, it's like, look, man, it was an interpretation of the West, but most importantly, Sam, as much as I think Sam Elliott is a fucking legend, it's based on a book. So don't go after Jane Campion, go after Tom Savage. I don't know if he's alive or not, but go after him. Don't go after the movie. <sighs>
1: One also like Sam, buddy. You don't like it? Go make a movie, pal. You know, like go go direct a western. You know, like you know, nobody's stopping you. You know, you could probably get it done.
0: I just love that two massive legends in Hollywood that are both icons of Western films were both from, They're both from Southern California. <laughs> I don't right, know why right, right, that's right. so funny to me, but it just is.
1: Wait, who are the two? Sam, Sam Elliott, Elliott and, and Clean Eastwood. Oh, right. East- yeah, Eastwood's the big one. I mean, we talked about that to death in our Eastwood podcast, about him being this icon of, like, rugged masculinity. And he's literally like an art boy from the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, who likes jazz and shit. Like, yeah, yeah. No, that's really funny.
0: So uh, before we get into this this episode, guys, I want to say we, I, we did get the messages that uh, listeners were reaching out, letting us know we had some sound issues. Uh, That's my fault on the tech side. Uh, There were some issues with this new uh, software we're using to remote record. So I think we have fixed them. So there will not be any more issues, but we do apologize for the poor sound quality because there is nothing worse than listening to a podcast with poor sound quality because I've done it and it's awful. Yeah, and
1: I I just want to say um, none of this is my fault because I refuse to lift a finger on the tech side. So uh, That's true, guys. He's not joking. (laughs) So uh, no culpability on my end. I did uh, get
0: like this uh, drunken phone call at like 3 a.m. of him just cursing at me for fucking up the podcast and fucking up the sound. And he called me a few. um, (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's (laughs) not say what I called you. um but no in all seriousness uh that that <laughs> I said, is you fuck up my money and we're gonna have a problem <laughs> uh there were threats involved that were oddly specific um but uh but no in all seriousness we yeah we apologize for that guys we think we have fixed the issue we uh we we figured out this new this new recording software so we should be good to go so um now that we have that out of the way Let's talk about Tony Scott. Let's not just talk about Tony Scott, but let's kind of dive into how we ended up doing. We're going to be doing three <laughs> episodes about Tony Scott. Essentially, guys, we have not done a three episode series since our very first three episodes with Catherine Bigelow. So we're going to get back to it and, and try it again. Um, but I picked Tony Scott. And I picked two movies that I love from Tony Scott, one of which I think is his best one. Technically, they're probably tied for his best two. I don't want to spoil that, so I won't say what they are. And then my co-host decided, um, let's just do like 90% of his filmography. That sounds fun. (laughs) Um, So here we are, guys. Tony Scott, part one.
1: Well, okay, let me, let me, without getting too deep into the woods and inside baseball and all that shit, let me, let me just kind of expand on my thinking and why I thought it would be interesting to do this. I thought it would be a nice change of pace, you know, because a lot of the episodes, you know, we do a director we really like, and we talk about two other movies, and then we go, well, we're, you know, we got to do another one of these episodes, you know, we'll do another one pretty soon or whatever, and... You know, I think that, that that works fine. I mean, that's, you know, we do another one whenever we want to. And and that works fine, especially for a lot of these directors who have, you know, a ton of movies and, and they deserve to be examined in great detail, you know. Uh, but for someone like Tony Scott, I thought like, you know, he's got such an interesting career that I thought it might be fun to kind of do a multi-part uh kind of arc and this is not to say we're gonna keep doing it this way in the future um but i thought it might be a nice change of pace because he's got kind of an interesting um career that i just kind of want to outline briefly right so you know the movies that we're going to be talking about we've got uh, we've got uh, the hunger first which was his his debut feature and then uh w- which is kind of his only british movie really and his um uh his only art house kind of movie uh in a way everything else is very mainstream american action fair you know and this is you know this is similar to the other kind of vulgar auteurist um directors we focused on in the past maybe the most critically lauded uh vulgar a besides michael mann and maybe john carpenter if you count him in there but certainly, certainly one of the most famous ones. And um, so, anyways, we've got we got the hunger, and then you know he goes right into uh, just mainstream American action cinema with Top Gun, Days of Thunder, uh, The Last Boy Scout, and True Romance. So those are the five that we're going to cover in this first episode because we talked about it, and we really don't want to delve too deeply into any of those movies. And um,
0: because I mean, honestly, most of those movies you've all seen, I know we have, judging sure. from our, our numbers, we have somewhat of a younger listening audience. So if you haven't seen any of these, um, obviously when we when we kind of briefly touch on them, we will stress which ones really need to be watched. But I mean, some of these are the best action movies ever made. Um, one of them in particular. So if you haven't seen them, obviously go watch them. But I mean, most of I'm, we're assuming most of you guys have seen like Top Gun and Day, uh, Days of Thunder. Top Gun and Days of Thunder. <laughs>
1: Right. Right. And, and like even the last Boy Scout, I think it'll be interesting to talk about. But I mean, that that is not a movie we would ever do on like a double feature, you know, just because there's just not enough meat on that bone. So I thought, well, why don't we just why don't we just tackle a bunch of them at once and kind of divide this up into maybe a three parter? That way we can focus on what we want to, because Tony Scott's career gets really, really interesting after True Romance. Right. Because and then these are the four that we're going to talk about in part 2 uh crimson tide uh enemy of the state uh shit help me out man on fire deja vu is that right
0: uh on the on um, part 2
1: yeah the next 4 it's yeah crimson...
0: spy game crimson tide man on fire enemy of the state
1: that's right spy game was the one i'm thinking about so yeah when when you look at his the next um the next kind of level in his career it's really a career in transition right Because these five movies that we talked about, we got the one art house, but the other four are very, very middle of the road. And I don't mean that in terms of quality. I mean like mainstream American action cinema. But with Hunt for Red or not Hunt for Red October, um, Crimson Tide, Crimson Tide, Jesus. Well, they're both Um,
0: they're both submarine movies.
1: Right, right, right. Um, But with Crimson Tide, he starts uh, getting a little bit kind of more experimental with his visual style. Um, this would evolve a little bit further in Enemy of the State and a, and a little bit further in Spy Game. And by the time Man on Fire comes out, um, he has has developed his late style. And that is what I think uh, Tony Scott's um, the most critical attention has come, is, is this late style. And if you watch any of these later movies, you know kind of what I'm talking about. They're very, very abstract and um, kind of digital slurry. It's like it's like if someone had taken the most digitized abstract shots from a Michael Mann movie and made them even more digitized and abstract. Right? It's it's not shaky cam like Paul Greengrass. It's a really, really, really complicated aesthetic that was really, really influential and really, um, in my opinion, one of the most important developments in 21st century cinema is Tony Scott's late style because it was really influential and really beautiful in and of its own right. And then, uh, his, his true late style, he just kept getting more abstract and more abstract visually while working still within the mainstream of American action cinema. We got deja vu, we got domino, and then we got, of course, his two last two classics, taking a Pelham one, two, three and unstoppable. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I had in mind. Cause I was just like, I want to talk about his career as a whole. And I, I think a lot of what he does is, uh, indicative of a lot of how the direction of, of movies have gone in the past, you know, 30 years or so. So yeah, I don't know. That's my pitch. Maybe it will be unlistenable. Uh, but I don't think it will be. I think we'll be able to, uh, to navigate the waters here and, and give you guys uh, a good product about our boy, Tony Scott, who who I should, I, I should say, and I, I want you to chime in on this too, John. Like, I think we both agree. He is, he is a, a great director who deserves uh, more critical attention than he already has. Definitely. Um, oh, absolutely.
0: And, and I, and I do want to say that for those of you that don't know, I don't know if this is, this may not be, I mean, I'm sure most people know it. He was, he, he tragically, his, his career was cut short. His life was cut short. Um, I think it's been about 10 years ago now that, um, that he did commit suicide. So that is why his career just kind of ended where it did. So I think that, um, with Ridley Scott still working, I think people can forget how good Tony Scott was, how, how much skill he had and, and the, the very unique, uh, camera work and angles and colors and, and fast editing that he was implementing long before, as you pointed out, it became more mainstream in Hollywood. Uh, he was doing shit before a lot of other people started using it in their films. And I think that, right. I mean, he, he's made some, he's made, like, he, he for most of his career, He as we're going to dive into with, with this three-part series, is he managed to give you what you would refer to as, like, popcorn cinema but it always had layers and something extra. He never yeah. just gave you, like, I love Michael Bay, but with Transformers, there's nothing there except it, it's, it's great effects. Like, it's just, it's a big, explosive, just kind of crazy thing with Michael Bay, but there's nothing in Transformers. I don't think Tony Scott made a movie that he didn't put some type of layers and, and, and his fingerprints all over it. I don't, I really don't think he made one.
1: No, that's a, that's a really really good point. That, that, you know, there's a distinction I think between somebody like Paul W. S. Anderson and Michael Bay, who I you know I, I respect both of them as filmmakers, but at a certain point they're almost kind of like Hitchcock level filmmakers, which is to say that they are they are very good at building machines, you know, and and, and uh, by building machines I just mean that as a euphemism for like creating you know a Nolan type filmmaker, you know, creating the world. That the movie takes place in and not really giving you much you know necessarily to think about or chew on and i i don't necessarily there's think there's necessarily much to think about in a tony scott movie but the way that he uses uh cinematic and digital space is just so experimental and avant-garde there's that's the only way you can describe some of his stuff in fact they did a after he tragically passed away, um, they did a uh, a retrospective of his films uh, here in New York, and they paired each one of the movies with like a seven or eight minute experimental short from you know some highly highly touted uh, experimental directors. Stan Breakage was on there, and Jonas Mika's and some people like that. Um, so the saying that that his his visuals were part of the twenty first century avant garde is not that's not irony or that's not, you know, hyperbole at all. It really it really is incredible. And I, I we'll, we'll get into that deeper when we start talking about his late style because it really is a sight to behold, especially um you know, Man on Fire. Um but we'll get to that. We we'll, we we'll, we'll get to that. That's uh you know, that that's in the future. And and of course, like you said, John, it is you know, it's tragic. The man fucking, he, he allegedly killed himself, you know? Uh, well, he, no, he did kill himself. He jumped off a bridge. The, it's confusing about the reasons why, you know, Ridley has said that he had cancer and then the coroner said that he actually didn't. And so it was, you know, a couple of different, you know, conflicting versions of events, but he did take tragically take his own life. And I think that's a bit unusual. You don't get a lot of movie. I Googled it movie directors who have killed themselves. And most of the time it was like classic Hollywood directors who like fell into disrepute or whatever, but like, you know, authors, you know, it happens to authors and writers and artists and stuff, but film directors live a pretty glamorous lifestyle, right? Like it, it they don't, uh, they don't end up seeking suicide as an option. And unfortunately that's something that happened with Tony Scott. He must've been, you know, deeply troubled or, or something. And, um, so, yeah, I figured what better way to kind of honor his memory than uh, do a super-sized three-part or something we don't do very often. Um, so, yeah, what do yeah. you think? Should we just jump into it?
0: Yeah, and it's kind, of a, it's kind of a down note to jump into it because The Hunger is far and away my least favorite movie that he's made, like, mm. by, by a mile Okay. Um, with with addressing it, uh, obviously, um, as his first movie to come out in 1983, it it had some interesting themes to it, but for the most part, I uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I I watched it, and I I was like, did I watch this? Have I seen this before? And I and I think I've pretty much decided that I started it years ago and turned it off because I wasn't in the mood and never went back to finish it. Uh, So this kind of is my first time uh, seeing it. And for those of you that don't know, it's essentially it's it's a weird movie. I can't even call it a vampire movie. I mean, it's basically a love triangle, you know, but one of the people you only see David Bowie, you only see for about maybe 15 minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. And Sarandon, it's a really weird movie, man. It's based on a book, but apparently they changed some things. But I mean, what what were you what What are your thoughts on The Hunger as a directorial <laughs> debut? Uh, knowing since we have hindsight to see what came after such a quote unquote art house film, what do you what, what do you make of this movie? Well, you know, I mean,
1: to give a little bit of I think it's important to give a little bit of background to say kind of where he was in 1983. I mean he he originally wanted to be a painter. Um, he went to school to be um, like a fine artist and be a painter. And which obviously that, uh, that impulse will certainly, uh, revisit us in some of his later work. But, and then he, he got, um, you know, kind of bitten by the film bug and, and his older brother, Ridley Scott is his older brother. I don't even know if we mentioned that, but yeah, Ridley Scott is his older brother and started a, um, uh, film production company for advertisers, uh, or an ad film ad agency basically in the UK. And so Tony went to work with, with Ridley and, and you know, made some money and they, they made a bunch of commercials and uh, I don't want to really get too bogged down in this, but they really, really influential in making a new kind of, of slick, sexy uh, f- commercials, right? The, the, these were ad agencies in the UK that hired them to make these and, and was really influential in the world of advertising. Uh, kind of a a step beyond, you know, the kind of uh, 1950s, you know, something like we would see in Mad Men, right? This is, they were the first to kind of do like rock and roll, sexy commercials, you know. And he, I think, you know, talking about the hunger, and especially when we get into his Hollywood work, you know, This is a movie that is you know kind of an art house british mgm movie you know with david bowie uh and catherine Deneuve, obviously and uh, you know susan sarandon and i to me I, i think the hunger is most effective almost as a commercial it is almost like a like a perfume commercial come to life you know like a like a kind of dark like gothic fantasy i don't think it works very well as a movie as much as it just works as kind of an aesthetic experience, right? Like I don't even really know what the story is to this thing. Like, uh, if like if you needed me to tell you the story, I couldn't do it. Like it's just it's just about their. Va- it's a love triangle, and David Bowie has a disease that makes him age, and there's really no plot to speak of, and there's just Catherine Deneuve and um, and uh, Susan Sarandon kind of circling each other and just. Absolutely in heat for one another, and um, that's really it. It's almost just like an exercise and kind of pure uh aesthetic uh you know pure aesthetic that that's all it is
0: um well i mean that's so, that's that's the thing that's infuriating about the movie is is you're right about the story for the most part like there is one there it just takes a little digging, but he introduced some really interesting themes. That kind of builds on the vampire lore,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but then it just completely fizzles out and turns into like just this very Hitch- Hitchcockian, perverted type of take on on yes. these like long lesbian scenes and and sex scenes between Danu and Sarandon. and they kind of just ignore the the questions that they introduced in terms of. Uh, is immortality, is the vampire lore that we've all uh, come to know and, 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 and even into different iterations of it, um, kind of tackles it from a, from a different perspective of is it worth living if you're an addict? Like right. if you constantly have to, you know, it's blood, but it could be heroin, it could be cocaine, whatever, you're addicted to something that you need. Or you will age and you will die, which is essentially what is happening to David Bowie's character. And then they completely just ignore those questions that that they kind of raised in the beginning. And I honestly don't understand how this is a cult classic. It is it is a very big cult classic in like the goth community and stuff. But I don't understand how or why.
1: Well, I mean, I think I think this is a pure vibes movie, you know, I mean, really, I don't think, you know, I, I'm not surprised you didn't like it at all, because I know how much you like, uh, you know, vampire shit. And and this movie uses kind of vampire in the same way that something like Twilight used it. Right. Which is uh, they're not really exploring anything about, the, like you said, the vampire mythology or whatever. It's really just a means to an end. And that end is essentially to create a ninety-minute-long, uh, almost music video, you know, that has David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon, you know, and uh, the latter two uh, fucking each other, you know, like it's 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 really kind of all style and no substance. And I I respect it on a certain level because it it shows the kind of um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. It shows the kind of style over substance attitude it showed what he was capable of of just pure just unfiltered style because I can truly say I've never seen a movie that looks like this right but you know if it's going to be a vibes movie you know it has to really you know attract you on some level and the vibes are this are, are fucked for me like I have no I have no affinity for, like, goth subculture or for any of that shit. Like, I just it just doesn't appeal to me. I never got caught up in it. And so, like, the vibes of it, like, I understand why they would, like, watch this movie and be like, oh, my God, I want to be David Bowie in this movie or whatever. And, like, you know, I want to be, you know, Catherine Deneuve in this movie. But for me personally, it's just not my kind of vibes movie. But I, I respect it for the for the pure style. I mean, you know, this man... The, the whole thing looks like an ad an ad or a music video or, like, a, you know, just kind of... There's, like, your the the music at the beginning. It's, like, this kind of Euro-trash, gothic vampire fantasy. And it's not wholly satisfying as a movie, but it is pretty satisfying as an aesthetic in the sense that I'm, like, oh, I get it. Like, I, I get why people like this. I... Doesn't necessarily do a whole lot for me, but I, I kind of I kind of understand on on some level how it is a cult classic, because I I understand being like, you know, kind of a moody, like, you know, 14 year old and seeing this for the first time and being like, oh, my God, this is my favorite movie. You know,
0: uh, there's only one thing in this movie a 14 year old be interested in. And, you know, <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I met a 14 year old girl, you know, you're a 14 year old oh, okay. girl, you're, okay. you're watching this and you're like, Oh my God, I want to be, you know, I want to be Catherine Deneuve in this or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's, there's, it's not very much of a movie, but it is, it, it is a hell of an aesthetic. And, uh, that is, he, he would go on to continue to do that. I think throughout his career, you know, it's defined these aesthetic, especially in the next movie.
0: Yeah, and and talk about this absolutely, like, absurd step to take in your career. We go from this artsy, moody, style-over-substance, David Bowie music video, like you Mm. pointed out, and The Hunger in 1983, to this classic of the 80s, one of the most referenced films of all time, three years later in 1986, with Top Gun, which every time I watch it, it's fantastic. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Like the dialogue is awful. The characters are just cutouts, but I, I always compare this movie to like point break because it's just fucking cool. Like I don't need point break to have like massive character development and great acting and great exchanges. Point break is as great as it is because it's so cool and top gun is just a fucking cool movie with some of the best, like to this day, some of the best action in the air we have ever seen in an airplane movie. Like, it's fucking nuts, man.
1: Now I I will say this. I will say this. I, I you know, watching this recently, I was kind of unimpressed by the action. And maybe, maybe it is an error in concept and not necessarily an execution, but it reminded me of that Clint Eastwood movie, uh, firefox where yeah it's like, that
0: movie also has great action great dogfight scenes what's your beef with dogfights
1: i don't know maybe that's it maybe maybe it just doesn't appeal to me but like i just like it It feels like it's really hard to do like i don't know continuity action when you have just like planes like it was hard to like figure out what was going on and like um i don't know i just i wasn't particularly struck with like the level of, of action you know like when i think of good action i think of like I, I know this is different, obviously, but, like, I think of, like, John Wick. I think of two people hitting each other. And, like, I think it uh, the kinetic nature of that, it's, like, hard to get across with these, like, sp- things that are flying through the sky at like, 500 miles an hour. Like, it just, I don't think it lends itself well to movies. I mean, obviously, I'm wrong, you know? A, a lot of people think this is great action. But it just doesn't. I don't know. It just doesn't do it for me. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't really keep track of what's going on. I feel like maybe I'm just getting old.
0: Well, I will tell you. No, it is confusing to keep track of what's going on because they 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 do. There's a lot of fast cuts. He wants to show you the cock like in the cockpit so you know what the pilot's doing. But he also wants to show you this aerial action. So I understand that it can be a bit like visually jolting. I'm not going to disagree with that. But I am a big fan. Of airplane movies. I even love that god-awful movie with James Franco called Flyboys. Um, wow. I'm just a fan of, of movies that involve dogfights and, and anything in the air. And that's why I'm so pumped for the Top Gun sequel, because Tom Cruise learned how to fly a jet for the sequel. So <laughs> that's just going to be epic to see. Well, I'll say this. I, I want to I
1: be clear about this, though. I think there is a... And I don't want to get too bogged down in the action because I almost think the action is beside the point, right? Like, when I say I don't think it has good action, that's what I mean about the kind of clarity or whatever. The the shots of the planes flying are cool, right? Like, even if you don't know what's going on, he makes flying look incredible. You know, he makes these planes... And he does this in in Days of Thunder, too, where, like, he makes these these giant machines look amazing, right? Like I was I, I found myself thinking more about these giant flying machines that are going and shooting than I did about like the effects of one plane shooting another or which plane was shooting which other one down. Right? Does that make sense? Like Yeah. It, it it's a different it's a different kind of you know what I mean? It's it's a different kind of thing. It's like it's like watching uh uh, something that's aesthetically beautiful, as opposed to actually watching action and keeping track of what's going on, you know. Um, well,
0: let, let's do this. Let's talk about Days of Thunder and this movie basically in the same conversation, because okay. for anybody that's seen it, they're the same fucking movie. Um, right. So, with with Days of Thunder, to me, I buy the like the hatred. And, and the relationship development between Rooker and Tom Cruise more than I buy the relationship between Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Okay. I, I buy that a little more. But I do also buy the friendship in Top Gun. When When he dies, you genuinely feel it because they actually did a pretty good job of getting across by introducing his wife and kid, they did a pretty good job of introducing those characters, but they failed in days of thunder with Duvall and Tom Cruise. I didn't buy that quick father son relationship.
1: Um, well, let me I'm going to, I'm going to separate this conversation because I, I think the word style over substance is going to be something we are going to say a lot about Tony Scott. And I want to separate the substance from the style and talk about that a little bit. So I'm glad you brought this up. Um, because to talk about the style of Top Gun is completely separate, and I want to just uh, you know bracket that for a future conversation. But um, I agree with you about the content. I think at at best those relationships are serviceable, right? Like, like I really think they're they're just barely serviceable. Like, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, the actors as opposed to any of the writing or any of the directing because I Tony Scott is not Howard Hawks right you, you, like I feel like a viewer could deceive themselves into thinking that like oh like this is about guys hanging out and being dudes it's not the guys are, hang- are not really hanging out and being dudes that much With like the relationships that we get this is not Rio Bravo or El Dorado or even fucking Reservoir Dogs for that matter right like the relationships are on like the thinnest possible uh, clothes, like clothing line that you're like hanging the plot on, you know, but I agree with you about buying like, and I also think it's true with the love story, right? Like the love story, like kind of works here and it kind of doesn't work here and it kind of goes in and out. But I don't think it's the strong suit of either of these movies. Oh, I, I thought think... the
0: love stories in both were terrible, especially oh, yeah, in yeah. Days of Thunder.
1: Yes, no, you're you're 100%, right? The love story works in Top Gun, but but I I think it works for a completely different reason which I'll mention. Um but but I think 99% of of the little bit which it does work has everything to do with Tom Cruise. Because we do not talk about how good of a movie star Tom Cruise is. we, we just we still don't to this day. Like he is charm and persona like just the way that he interacts with people is so it's so fake and weird that he when you really look at it you're like oh my god he did he's not even a person he's like a robot created in a lab but he's so good at it right like 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 Tom Cruise can override a cheesy piece of dialogue with that like big toothy grin of his, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, yeah, the eighties
0: were his heyday. I mean, he's, he's honestly still a movie star clearly, but I mean the eighties, he had so many hits that he had to carry because they just didn't make any sense, especially the bartender one, which is not a Tony Scott movie. That movie makes zero sense. It works because yeah, yeah, it works just because of that man's charisma. Like, yeah, yeah, 100% agree.
1: I think that's the case with these two movies, too, because like like you really will have like, you know, and Robert Duvall, he's doing his best, I guess. But like this is this is this is he's sleepwalking through this shit. But like, you know, you can have just the most boring, cheesy sex scene or love scene or like just guys hanging out scene or whatever. And then Cruz just makes all of that shit better. He just makes all of that better with his screen presence, with his his quick laugh. Like I said, that that pearly white smile like he is a fucking star it's the same way that i mean this comparison too it's the same way that Cary grant would make a stray piece of dialogue into a really complex character moment you know like it's it it, tom cruise does the exact same fucking thing he elevates everything that he is in and with anybody else i think we're going to run into this in the last boy scout but with any other like a movie star, this dialogue would just be like atrocious and, and these movies wouldn't be classics, but, but Cruz is lifting heavily in this movie. And, and for whatever, like character charm or story charm or romantic charm, it's all on Cruz's shoulders for both of these movies. I think
0: I agree, but I will, I will ride pretty hard for Top Gun. I think Top Gun is a legitimately, Great movie that deserves the love that it continues to get today. But I I will say, I think Days of Thunder hurts the legacy of Top Gun because they were so similar. And all the ways that they managed to make Top Gun work, most of those ways landed pretty flat in Days of Thunder. Like I said, I I appreciated Tom Cruise and Rooker's relationship. But the, 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 the... the very same story beats and all of that with a race car driver, the action's not nearly as good. To me, it's a bit more generic because like the, the plane scenes in Top Gun, I know they were a bit visually jarring and whatnot, but they were still pretty unique and a lot of fun. Mm. But the race car scenes in days of thunder, I mean, at this point we had, we've seen like the seventies gave us some of the best car movies ever made. So, when we look at the action in days of thunder, it's really lacking compared to top gun, in my opinion. So, so I, no, I think top guns legitimately good.
1: I no, I do too. I do too. Don't get me wrong. I, Cause I wanted to use this to kind of segue into what Tony Scott is actually bringing to the table here, because I feel like we've kind of talked with these two movies about what, what these movies are not, you know, which they're not, you know, necessarily good story, good stories or characters or anything like that. and, Cruz is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in that regard. But what, what I think Tony Scott is bringing to the table, and, you know, we have to mention his partner in crime here, Jerry Bruckheimer, you know, who Bruckheimer is one of the most successful producers of all time and has gotten a lot of shit, deservedly so, for a lot of his movies and stuff. But they collaboratively worked to bring that kind of advertising aesthetic that Tony Scott had and bring it to the world of, the American action movie, and I think he applies the exact same principles to both Top Gun and Days of Thunder. The only difference is, the fucking Navy flyers is cooler than NASCAR. It just is. It always will be, and there's no like there's no way around that. So like the execution of both ideas, I think the same. I think de- I think Days of Thunder is as good as a movie like that could possibly be. Right. I think Tony Scott directs the hell out of it. He makes it way more kinetic and way more interesting than it actually should be. Uh, But Top Gun lends itself way better to that kind of like the the subject matter of just the Navy plane flyers like that they it lends itself much better to Tony Scott's like. Advertising aesthetic. I mean, the whole thing is an advertisement. It's an advertisement for Tom Cruise. It's an advertisement for the Navy. It's an advertisement for America. You know, it's an advertisement for the American action movie like it, it really is um, kind of perfect in that regard. And I think the style of it. I mean, dude, that open the opening credits with the mu and plus the music i mean the music to top gun is legendary in a way that it's just not with days of heaven i mean you can only strike gold so many times when it comes to great music in a movie but that opening those opening credits with that like those planes landing at the golden hour sunset or whatever and the the music playing i mean dude that shit is it, it it's it's incredible this is tony scott with this movie defined what it was to be like the jingoistic American action movie of the eighties. Like it's, I don't know, man, it's incredible.
0: I think. I'm still going to say though, as I've said for years, when top gun comes up, nobody plays beach volleyball in jeans. I'm sorry. (laughs) No one does. That is the most uncomfortable thing I could possibly imagine.
1: I mean, dude, there's so many absolutely batshit things like that in this movie. Like he just barging into the woman's bathroom, everybody joining in to sing the song like and it's really homoerotic like like people like to do that with movies where they're like, oh, these characters are actually gay. But this movie, it's like. Brother, it is it is front and fucking center. Like Tom Cruise essentially refuses to have sex with her until she puts on a bomber jacket and a pair of aviators. Like it's crazy. Like,
0: hey man, <laughs> he has his fetishes. Don't fetish shame him. <laughs>
1: hey, I'm not shaming him. Like, you know, it's just man. He's like, I just
0: want to, I just want to pretend you're Iceman.
1: <laughs> well, and like Days of Heaven also, or Days of Thunder is also does not work nearly as well because you know it, Tom Cruise is kind of like a loser in that movie right like we get the impression that he's just kind of like a loser who's good at his job he, he's almost like a Ryan Gosling character in, in Drive or something whereas like in Top Gun he is the all American hero I mean that movie is all glistening muscles and dog tags hanging you know banging against pecs and you know it, like it's it's it really pumps up this like action figure uh, aesthetic that is, it's unparalleled, I think. Like, well, And I, I, think, I think Tony Scott deserves credit for Days of Thunder in the sense that he made that movie more watchable than it should have been. And he deserves credit for Top Gun in the sense that with him and Bruckheimer created an aesthetic there that would essentially define the next 20 years of American movies until 9-11, or i will say 15 years.
0: Uh no I I agree with that but I will say about about Days of Thunder is another reason it doesn't work the way it does in Top Gun and I I say this with love he said this about himself is the homoerotic thing would never work because Michael Rooker is just a fucking hillbilly
1: so <laughs>
0: he's not he's not right. Val Kilmer he's Michael Rooker I think he's like from fucking Arkansas or something so like it would have it, it's not gonna translate the same way right um,
1: right but I mean, yeah it, Val Kilmer man he's so like. He's so they're both so visually perfect in exact opposite ways, you know, and like their hair, their hair is practically touching in that very first scene. Like Val Kilmer's hair is just like waving for no reason. And that's like, it's just it's comical. It's campy almost. And it it
0: makes me think of like the Fast and the Furious movies when they go nose to nose. Yeah. And they're like, you want to fucking go, bro. And it's like, yeah, dude, you're basically almost kissing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah it's dude it's it's yeah it, it Top Gun is such a great cultural artifact man I have nothing but good things to say about Top Gun like I, I really truly think it's one of the most emblematic movies of the 80s like it, it just
0: and I know. know I'm being hard on Days of Thunder I like Days of Thunder but I'm sorry you give me a choice if you want to talk about a Tony Scott classic action movie it is it is the people that are going to pick days of thunder over top gun are probably few and far between. I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, it's just a better movie. Yeah, it just is. It's better in concept and it's better in execution. But I do think, I do think Tony Scott, uh, brought a level of style to days of thunder that it would not, I mean, he, him and Jerry Bruckheimer, they invented the Bruckheimer house style, essentially, you know, Michael Bay came later. And, um, yeah, well, I mean, no, he, he,
0: he gave you everything he needed to give you out of a racing movie, but then put that Tony Scott touch on it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's really like, like you said, he made it better than it should have been. That's really what saves it is him applying his style. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah and incredible, incredible stylist. And before we move on to, uh, to the next two, cause I think we can also almost talk about them in tandem in a way, um, because of their, both of their screenwriters. Um, I want to mention I read this uh that you know the uh the Michael uh Chimino movie Gates of Heaven, you know that movie?
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: Uh which came out in 1980 was basically the end marked basically the end of uh studios giving directors uh carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. That was that was something that that happened in the 70s, you know, pretty often and Gates of heaven essentially completely ended that conversation. And so what we have throughout the eighties, we have the rise of the producer. This is the world that Jerry Bruckheimer came out of. Right. And days of heaven. Why do I keep saying days of heaven? Days of thunder was, it was not a flop by any stretch, but they wanted it to be top gun and it just didn't fulfill expectations. And it went over budget and, um, there's apparently a really funny story about Tony Scott and Bruckheimer not realizing that they, that they hadn't filmed his, his car crossing the finish line until, like, you know, uh, the movie was almost supposed to be released. And so they had to do, like, this emergency thing where they, <laughs> you know, like, they literally forgot to film it. Like, but anyways, the point is that, like, Days of Thunder marked the end of uh, studios giving producers carte blanche. And actually helped birth the independent film movement of the 90s. Because all throughout the 80s, you know, people were trying to do the Top Gun and make all this movies. And like, you know, people would think, well, we just give these producers a shit ton of money and they'll they'll shepherd in, you know, these these big blockbusters. And then when Days of Thunder came out, they were like, oh, I guess we can't rely on producers anymore. And that's when they started the studio started forming like little niche things like Miramax and stuff. That would actually make independent movies. So days of days of thunder actually has a really, really important place in cinematic history because of the way that it shaped uh, what studios would fund, which is something interesting. I had no idea about.
0: Yeah, I I came across a lot of that when I was preparing for this episode. And it's all it's all pretty interesting. I mean, because that that the first one, the gates of heaven, uh, that one comes up a lot in terms of what a clusterfuck that was. Right. So um,
1: So what do you think, man? Should we jump right into? uh... Yeah. Uh,
0: The last Boy Scout, honestly, both of them, the last Boy Scout and True Romance are movies that I should like way more than I do. Yes. The The last Boy Scout was written by Shane Black, and True Romance was written by Quentin Tarantino. But we can kind of. I want. I want to tackle them a little separately, um, just because the last Boy Scout is an interesting movie. Because I will be upfront about my bias towards Bruce Willis. I don't think he's cool. I've never bought him as that guy, and I am not a diehard fan. So, his one-liners and like trying to make this. I love Shane Black. I think Shane Black's a great writer. And I think that if somebody else was delivering this, it would have worked significantly better. For instance, I think Damon Wayans nailed his part way more than Bruce Willis did. Yeah. Because Bruce Willis, like, I, I think because of Die Hard, like, he he has, there was just something about him and he can't, he couldn't get this timing right. Um, but also, we can't ignore the fact that this is kind of, the end of the buddy cop kind of genre. Mm, I mean, this yeah. is post 48 hours. This is post Beverly Hills cop of which Tony Scott directed the sequel, which we're not discussing, but he did direct Beverly Hills cop two. And this is post lethal weapon, which came out in 89, I believe. So, um, like I think, I think, uh, Ebert said that, the, some some of the screenplay worked, but the story could have just been like a side ripped out of a Lethal Weapon movie. Mm, and I think yeah. that's a good way to put it because this story makes zero fucking sense. It's the right. most weird, convoluted story. It's almost like we witness Shane Black kind of harnessing his writing ability from how choppy and sloppy this story is compared to something like The Nice Guys that is also really layered and has a lot in it, but it's so much cleaner, and it makes a lot more sense. Because this movie's a fucking mess in terms of a story. I don't know right. if you're on my side on that, but that's that's what I think.
1: No, I, you know, I, I'll say this about the Last Boy Scout. This is a movie that I should like, and I just didn't. You know, I, I, I just because because I will say this. Talking about it as you know a, a Shane Black movie, you know, he was obviously a very um, very famous screenwriter and got I think I read that he got paid more than any other screenwriter ever, uh, for this script. that yeah. like it was it was the highest selling script of all time, which is really funny when you think about this script. Like <laughs> it's like, oh, this is the one they put the big bucks on, huh? Um and it's uh I don't know. I can't say I'm that big of a Shane Black fan, but I there are some blind spots with me that I haven't seen. I mean, even though I acknowledge Lethal Weapon is Is obviously the the whole series is is great, but this one doesn't work. This is a movie I should like, but I just don't. And I think I think Bruce Willis, his character in this is tough,
0: man, because like he's such a fucking asshole. Like it's in it's nonstop. You never you never even give us a sliver of something to relate to or like about you. And I'm sorry, but the end of it when he tells his wife like he he he's like, Oh, you're a fucking bitch and I want to kill you. Yes. And he's just laughing. And it's like, that does not translate to the audience very well. And I'm yep. not talking about like some woke perspective of how misogynistic it was. I'm talking about from writing one Oh one and character delivery. It does not work.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I've said this before regarding certain things, you know, I, the, some of the woke, uh, Film criticism is, is, is real. I mean, it's, you know, slow hanging fruit, but it's really bad. But like in a situation like this, I feel like whatever the wokes would say about this movie are right in the sense that like the opening scene, I mean, you know, we get to see our, you know, Damon Wayans, who's, you know, one of the good guys and the, the screenwriting question of, okay, well, how are we going to make it? How are we going to let everybody know he's one of the good guys? I know we'll have a football player trying to uh, force a woman to give him an underwater blowjob job uh, and half drown her. And our hero will uh, throw a football and hit the guy in the face. And dude, I'm I, like, I, I like I, I'll take all the criticism in the world from anybody who listens to this, but I'm sorry. The wokes are right on this one. Like think of another fucking, way to make your character relatable dude i, I like like you, I you're not, not even
0: gonna walk over there like this is right. rape essentially and you're right. not you're just gonna keep joking about it as this woman is drowning and you're yeah. not even gonna fucking walk over there and do anything right. like i agree with you 100
1: and she just like she just like runs off like topless and it's like and, and the guy sitting in the hot tubs like later bitch or whatever and it's like dude like Jesus Christ, man. Like, you know, like, And there's on, no
0: repercussions for him. We see him later yeah. in the movie and he's just on the field like aha, no no big deal. Like yeah, if nobody yeah, yeah, had yeah. been there, I probably would have raped her, but haha. Ha. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Like it, it's it's treated so nonchalantly. It's just like, dude, this was you know, maybe in something in the 70s or something like, you know, you can see shit like this, but this is I don't know, man. This is not some kind of grindhouse exploitation movie. This is supposed to be mainstream American comedy and like I don't know, man. That shit just, god damn. Think of another way to make your character relatable. Like, are we supposed to think, like, obvi- like, obviously it's not a scene where we're supposed to be horrified by it. Are we supposed to, like, think it's kind of funny? Like, it's just, I don't know, man. Also, it, like,
0: are we supposed to, like, like a- another question would be, like, are we supposed to be, like, okay, he's a he's a good guy. Look at him. He just did what any decent human being should ever do, but he also did the baseline effort.
1: Like, he couldn't even
0: go over there. Yeah, I'm on board with this guy. He hates rapists, too. Sure. He
1: threw a football at the rapist. Like, it's, yeah, it's, you know, and I I think for that reason and the fact that, 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 god damn, he is such an asshole in this movie. Bruce Willis is just like, like, literally every line of dialogue is just like, fuck you, you fucking piece of shit. I'll fuck, you'll fuck, and it's like he's talking to his, his allegedly his buddy, Damon Wayans, right? Like it's just
0: the way he just, talks to his child, the way he talks to his wife, yes. even, and, and, and I understand his wife was cheating on him, but I would too, if I was her, cause he's an asshole. Like it,
1: it, it's, it's one of those things where like, this is supposed to be a mainstream American comedy, right? Like or mainstream American action movie. Like this is not, you're not making some kind of comment on anything. You're, this is a movie that like, if they made it today, The Rock would be in it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of that's the kind of actor who's supposed to be in this movie. Or, I don't know, Tom fucking Cruise, right? Like, but instead, we have this, like, miserable fuck of a guy, Bruce Willis, who is just an asshole to everybody and, like, has no redeeming qualities. And we just get to see him go through this world. And it's like, dude, I'm not even enjoying this, man. Like, isn't this shit supposed to be fun?
0: Well, I'll tell you, there is a great bit from Family Guy that applies to this that I thought of as soon as I rewatched this movie. Because this is only my second time watching it, because I'm just not a fan. And he, uh, when later in the movie, when those two cops are talking and they're like, yeah, man, he saved the president's life one time. Mm. And it's like, at that point, are we supposed to completely like change? Like, oh, okay, Bruce Willis, like this character saved the president's life. There is a great bit in Family Guy where this guy is an asshole. He is just a dick to everybody. And Peter overhears someone say, oh, well, hey, that guy, he may be an asshole, but he he donated all his money to charity last year. And then, like, the (laughs) music starts playing. And Peter's like, oh, man, he is a nice guy. (laughs) And this is exactly the type of shit. This is why I'm saying, like, Shane Black, like, it's weird considering we got Lethal Weapon and, and Predator. Because this movie is just so poorly written in so many ways. Character development, character likability, story. It's so convoluted. But I will say, and and unless you have something else to say about The Last Boy Scout, we can transition to true romance with this. Tony Scott managed to direct a movie from a very unique screenwriter who everyone loves, most people love, which is Shane Black. And he managed to make one from arguably the greatest screenwriter living right now, anyway, Quentin Tarantino. And he managed to not only capture their style, but still put his fingerprints on it. And it worked and meshed together perfectly, especially in True Romance.
1: Yes. And see, that's and this will be a good segue to talk about to, to transition into True Romance, because. You know, we have like I, I think throughout these first five movies, and this is why the latter part of his career is so much more interesting than the first part. Even though, like, I do think obviously they're interesting things, but but at this point, Tony Scott is still a director for hire. He's five movies in, and he is still very much uh sub sub what, what's the word I'm looking for sub sub uh, sublimating. His, I have no uh, idea what words you're looking for. <laughs> like, uh, uh, like he he's he's not superseding someone else's artistic vision. He's uh, submissive to it almost in a way. He's still submitting himself beneath the artistic vision of his partner, right? I mean, uh, Bruckheimer with the with Top Gun and uh days of thunder which is not to say that tony scott is not doing anything i don't mean that at all but what i mean is we don't get a film that is completely authored by him yet you know top gun and days of thunder are very much classic jerry bruckheimer movies right um no matter how well directed they are right and no matter how much tony scott helped influence the bruckheimer house style which he did but those are those are Jerry Bruckheimer collaborative movies. And in Last Boy Scout, he's dealing with a screenwriter who's very popular and important, Shane Black. And then, of course, Tarantino on um, uh, True Romance. So I, I just wanted to point that out. That's why I didn't think there was a lot of meat on these bones. Because if we're talking about Tony Scott, he is bringing something to the table. He is he's doing a director's job. He is bringing this element of style and in the case of top gun inventing a house style for Bruckheimer but we don't really get to see him fully unleashed yet in a way but we will in the future but but I think at this point in his career we don't quite get that yet because just segueing into true romance very much a Tarantino movie like very much you know which is not to say Tony Scott doesn't put a stamp on it, but I think if you were going to say who outweighs the other, I think it would definitely be Tarantino. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Well, I think I'll go and say this spoiler alert. In my opinion, the part two that we're covering mm-hmm. hands down the best Tony Scott that there is like okay. Barn okay. like to me, just absolutely fantastic. But that's what I'm really looking forward to getting to that. Cause I agree with you. These early films, he's doing other people's like, he, he's doing very iconic, like uh well-known screen, other screenplay writers kind of stuff and developing Mm -hmm. styles. So we don't really, I agree with that. So I did want to say part two, I think is just Tony Scott is in a whole other, on a whole nother level. Um, Okay,
1: good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So true romance. I agree with you in terms of it's clear that it's more Tarantino's thing, but I will say like Tony Scott came in, he shot everything really well. He also helped introduce another style of, of kind of, this, this hyper-violent, slow-motion type of thing, um, that's something that I think he kind of helped push into the movie world. Tarantino was obviously big into that, still is big into that. Um, mm-hmm. He managed to, to, to put his fingerprints on it and still do some things uh, that I thought were really interesting, but you are right. It is clearly... Uh, you can't escape the Tarantino here. Like the 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 way the characters are written, the way they deliver lines, the snappy dialogue, everything about it screams Tarantino. But I think that speaks also to Tony Scott's talent because he knew when to just let things go. Like, I don't need to dress this up. I just need to let the great Dennis Hopper and the great Christopher Walken have this scene. Like, Right. And I think that's a lot. I think any other director would have been like, no, I'm going to show them. This might be Tarantino's script, but I'm going to do my thing. And mm. it would have fucked it up.
1: Well, also, uh, just just to piggyback off that, what you're saying that really quick is that, like, we're dealing with a world in which Tarantino had directed Reservoir Dogs. Right? So, obviously, people knew he was a very good, precocious Filmmaker and anybody reading the script would be like, wow, he's a really good writer, but he wasn't a legend yet. Right. And what what is fascinating to me, and I think what Tony Scott deserves a lot of credit for. As a director, he is treating Tarantino like a legend and like a genius almost before anybody else was, you know what I'm saying? Like he he really lets Tarantino do these kind of like long scenes with a lot of dialogue, like the scene between. Uh, that you just mentioned between uh, Dennis Hopper and and what's his name? Um, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken, right. And um, so I, I think that's important to keep in mind, too. Like, Tony Scott did not just shepherd uh, a Tarantino movie into existence. He was treating Tarantino with the gravity and with the importance of someone like Shane Black before Tarantino had even really had a hit yet. I mean, Reservoir Dogs was obviously a great movie, but a lot of people didn't even see that movie until after Pulp Fiction it came out. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that, for looking at Tarantino and being like, oh my God, this guy's a genius. I have to completely uh, give this movie over to him before anybody in their right mind would have even said that. In fact, if the, the producer on, on True Romance probably would have told Tony Scott, what are you doing? Don't do this. This guy's a, a green screenwriter fresh off the boat, you know. But but he recognized the the talent in Tarantino and thought, I've just got to let this script breathe, you know, which is, like you said, that's, some, that's, that's movie directing, right? That's knowing when, you know, when to exert your will and, and influence and when not to, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and and I think anybody with any amount of of knowledge into the industry and all that would have looked at this script and realized, like, yeah, this is something special. Like mm-hmm, there there right. there is something here. Um, you know, just to uh, like, like I said, they did change the ending, and it was right. weird because Tarantino liked the ending he got opposed to the one he wrote. He said the one he wrote was a bit. Darker and Tony Scott, um, he, he says it was not a studio decision. He didn't, he liked these characters so much. He didn't want to see them die. So I thought that was an interesting change. And I thought it was really interesting that, that Tarantino liked it, but I will say about this, the characters are much more likable. I love the relationship between Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. I love the brief scenes with the great Dennis Hopper, um, and, and Christopher Walken this is a movie that I should like more than I do because I don't really like it that much, which is weird because it really has everything that I love in a movie. I guess the best thing I can say about this movie is it's the reason James Gandolfini got a chance to audition for Tony Soprano
1: Mm, because they liked him in this. You know, I I will say this about this movie. It, you know, it would have turned out differently if, 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 Tarantino had made this movie, obviously, and I, I don't even mean that in a... I think the story would have been different, right? Because we're, we're dealing with a situation where Tarantino writes a script and he sells it. And, you know, as opposed to seeing it um, made from day one through, you know, the time it's on DVD or whatever, right? Or VHS, right? Like, uh, and I think that Tarantino would have adjusted, you know, the script a little bit based on You know, based on because he he's not you know he's not nearly as rigid as people would think he would be with how good his writing is, right? He he obviously changes things and cuts here and there, so I think there is like a a kind of like twenty minutes where this movie really drags, uh, where it kind of turns into an action movie where it's like "Ah, I feel like Tarantino would have sped this up or would have done something different if he had been in complete control of this. So I, I do agree it kind of. It leaves it's it's less than meets the eye, but like this is one of those movies that's that's lesser than the sum of its parts, right? But the individual parts, ooh, buddy, they're good, man. I mean, Christian Slater as a fucking rockabilly Elvis dude, and, and I mean, and Patricia Arquette, and they're they're both just so beautiful, and they're like the fact that like she's a hooker that. That the guy's boss gets him because he's worried he's going to kill himself on his birthday. And he's at the movies and she pretends to like him, but she turns out to really like him. And, you know, like in a typical movie, like he would have been mad that she was a hooker. And it's like, no, man, Tarantino has more like warmth and love in his heart for for a scene like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just God damn it. I, these characters, man. They're just so great, and, and and you just want to spend so much time with them. And also, this is have we forgotten to see Tarantino do a love story? I mean, Jackie Brown is kind of a a love story for the middle aged, but this is a, this is a real love story in like the girl meets boy, you know, fall in love, get married at a courthouse. And I man, I just I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I really, I do think it doesn't completely cohere nearly as well as you know it would have if Tarantino had directed it but god damn some parts of this movie are really really easy to fall in love with man like it, it's just I don't know it, well I, I just certain parts of it are
0: great I want to say a couple of things real quick is the James Gandolfini scene is brutal yeah. it is a brutal scene he just beats the shit out of All Arquette, right. It is it is a graphic scene that I think it would struggle to be kept. Like I think somebody would probably try to cut it if they tried to make this movie. I, the last time I saw a movie a scene that brutal was that Casey Affleck movie um from like 10 years ago. I can't remember the name of it. He plays the the serial killing uh sheriff and yeah, 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 yeah. brutal with Jessica Alba and people were up in arms about that scene. So I think scenes like that, man, they are just they are hard to watch. Um, I will
1: say this, though, I found that I found that scene less offensive than the one we talked about in *Last Boy Scout, because the tone was clear. We are supposed to be horrified by it and rooting for Christian Slater to get back to the room as soon as possible. Right.
0: Well, yeah, I mean that was a bad guy doing it. So it's, it's much right. easier to be on board right. with it, opposed to our our protagonist.
1: Right. Right.
0: Also, Brad Pitt as the stoner roommate. Yeah, it's Perfect. Was and I want to just share this with our audience. I read that that was Judd Apatow's um, um, inspiration for uh, Pineapple Express.
1: Oh, yeah, he you said see that. He yeah. said,
0: I wanted to know what happens to the guy who's on the couch, the, get that guy getting chased by bad guys and getting shot at. I want to know about that guy.
1: That's incredible, Um, yeah.
0: And then I cannot believe neither of us have mentioned this. This is probably what the movie's most known for: Gary Oldman uh, as Drexel Spivey.
1: (laughs) Dude, I so over
0: the top in Gary
1: Oldman to me has always been one of those British actors who can never really convincingly do an American accent. You know, like like in my mind, that's who he's like. Even Commissioner Gordon, you know, sometimes he. He has trouble with the vowels and stuff, you know, but, and, and Mank was an absolute disaster in that regard. But dude, this one, like, I was just like, I didn't know Gary. I didn't know he was capable of doing an incredible, I didn't know his voice was capable of sounding like that. It was an incredible comic performance from this guy. Like
0: talk about shit. He couldn't get away with today. Good God.
1: Oh God. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he also, but well, I don't know. It depends. I mean, he was kind of, uh, he, he kind of made me think uh, of James Franco's character in Spring Breakers, you know, like um, like it was like that kind of like a riffraff kind of uh, character. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, you're probably right. It could not have been done today. Um, but uh, I just love that. I just love the parts of this movie so much, man. I mean, I really I really fell in love with uh, the main the main characters in this movie. I mean, they're just so. Just, I mean, the guy idolizes Elvis. It's like, who idolizes Elvis this much? And then, like, he sees the guy reading the magazine. He's like, yeah, these, some of these people are really freaks about it. And it's like, you were just in the bathroom talking to Elvis. Like, what are you talking about? Some people are freaks about it. Like, I don't know, man. I just, they're just such doofuses. And, like, I mean, dude, Patricia Arquette, as a hooker named Alabama with her crooked teeth and red lipstick and her tits popping now. I mean, and Christian Slater with his hair slicked back. I don't know. man. this this was just some iconic shit, man. I, I just Tarantino I wish Tarantino had made this movie so bad.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't I don't really have an opinion on whether or not I wish he had made it or not cuz I think it's just such a different it's a different film. I think there's a reason he didn't want to direct it. Um mm. And I think that's why it's just it's, it feels so different, because like you said, Jackie Brown is the only time he's really tried to do like a real love story. And also the original script was told in the traditional, like nonlinear way that he likes to do. They changed it to make it more understandable.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. That would have been a lot more interesting than, huh? Yeah. Um, well, and I, plus, I mean, I think people forget Terrence, you know, was at a stage in his career where. He thought selling a screenplay was a good idea, right? Like, he didn't know he was going to – like, he didn't know he was just going to be, like, a director who made his own scripts for his whole career. He didn't know that that blessing was going to fall on him, you know? So, I mean, it's it's understandable. I mean, he was just working within the industry at that point.
0: Yeah, no. So, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, and I'm glad it happened the way it did. I, I don't know why I don't like this movie more than I do, but I do – I think it's way better than The Last Boy Scout by uh by a long stretch
1: uh um, oh god yeah dude last boy scout man i, I you know god you know I, I sometimes i fool myself into thinking that everything from the 80s and 90s is good you know and then i, I watch something like Last boy scout and i'm like nope it wasn't all <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> all sunshine and roses you know
0: um i think with a movie like this it's just everybody wins great cast great script great director um the last thing I'll say about it is just when you thought like you were getting the the, the scummy Tom Sizemore we all know and love, uh, he pops back up again. And another Tom <laughs> and another uh, uh, Tony Scott movie. And he's just the scummiest. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. But anyway, I think that'll do it for our, our part one of our Tony Scott deep dive. What do you what do you say?
1: yeah let's wrap it up this is this is just the prelude folks this is just a little little appetizer we're really going to get into the meat of, of tony scott and his uh his uh his adventurous style to say the least uh with the with the next two parts and i'm interested i'm interested to hear you say that the next the next four are the are the best ones for you that's uh that's going to be interesting
0: yeah no I, i'm excited to get into that too so uh, guys follow us on Twitter Instagram email us any thoughts let us know uh, some of these movies are pretty beloved especially some of the other ones we're going to get into so let us know what your thoughts are and uh, and what your thoughts on Tony Scott are in general because like I said this is our, this is our first three part deep dive we've done literally since our first three episodes with Catherine Bigelow so uh, let us know what you're thinking um, do you have anything else to add before we get out of here
1: no let's wrap it up
0: Okay, guys, don't forget, rate and review wherever you listen. Those uh, those five-star reviews really help feed the algorithm, and that's really what we want to do. So uh, don't forget to do that. And uh, we'll see you next week at the Silver Screen Video.